Welcome to Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. As usual, our guests will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today, we are blessed to have a true world-class vaccine expert with us, Dr. John Grabenstein. I'm so excited to doc- talk to Dr. Gravenstein, but before we do, let's get some background information so we can dive right into the nitty-gritty questions that many of our listeners have regarding vaccines. Before I went into dermatology, I worked for two years in vaccine and infectious disease research at a place in Frederick, Maryland called the U.S. Army Medical Research Institute of Infectious Disease. And while there, I received a number of uh, experimental vaccines at the time, including botulism and anthrax. That was during Desert Storm uh, period of time, as well as plague, hepatitis A before it was more popular, and and some other vaccines. I even have volunteered for some COVID vaccine trials, but unfortunately, there's no uh, trials within three hours of where we live here in Fort Wayne. So I find this topic uh, uh, fascinating. And I know that a lot of my friends have been looking for information on the bioethics of vaccines, and we'll cover some of that. But we want to give a little bit of love out there to the National Catholic Bioethics Center. Uh, In fact, they have a podcast called Bioethics on Air. And uh, their August 26th episode had our guest today, along with Father Tad Paholchek, talking about one of the COVID vaccines, the one made by Moderna. And they had another episode dealing with the ethics of vaccines on September 8th. So we encourage our listeners uh, to also spend some time over there because I think they're doing an excellent labor. And, and most, of, most of the focus now, obviously, with the coronavirus is on the COVID vaccine. And hopefully we can talk to Dr. Gravenstein mostly about that, but also some other vaccine questions. The, the lay of the land, I guess, is this Operation Warp Speed, which they've been working kind of a public-private partnership to try and produce a, a coronavirus vaccine as soon as possible. And right now that, I guess not organization, but that movement has named five vaccines. And that's on their short list. And they have a longer list with more vaccines. But it looks like of the, um, of the five on the short list, uh, there are two that are not made using aborted fetal cells. Those, that's the Moderna vaccine, uh, an mRNA vaccine, and the Pfizer-BioNTech uh, vaccine. Whereas the one made by AstraZeneca in Oxford, the one made by Johnson & Johnson, also referred to as Janssen, are made with uh, aborted fetal cells. Now, there's a Merck vaccine out there uh, based on their Ebola vaccine, which is another ethically produced one. But we might clarify some of this with our guest. What we want to cover before the guest is really there are there are four essential phases of vaccine or medication development. You've heard about these. And simply speaking, uh, you know, there's preclinical testing in animals and test tubes. Then phase one is a safety trial, usually multiples of tens of people to see if something is safe. Then there's phase two, which is usually hundreds of people. And that's where it's uh, split into groups by different ages, et cetera, to see if it acts differently in different groups like children and the elderly as well as adults. Uh, and actually, it's a time to find out if it works a little bit. But then there are the true phase three trials with thousands or tens of thousands of people. And that's where you find out in a large population if it works and what some of the less common and more common side effects might be. And then phase four is actually something called post marketing surveillance. So that's after a drug or vaccine is approved. And uh, for the COVID vaccines in the U.S., there's an agreement to follow out with the data at least 24 months after release. And we're going to go into a lot of details. We're going to talk about vaccines that are in phase three right now. And we're also going to talk about different categories of vaccines uh, with John Gravenstein. And essentially, if you're keeping score at home, you know, there are genetic vaccines, which uh, insert a gene uh, of RNA or DNA. Uh, there's a viral vector where a virus, some virus that's not COVID, takes a part of the, the DNA or RNA of uh, the virus. Then there are vaccines based on the proteins from uh, that COVID produces. And then, uh, I guess in some parts of the world, they're even making weakened coronaviruses that they're injecting into people. What do you oh, think of that, Andrew? Attenuated. You know, it's, 
And obviously this show is going to focus a lot on the COVID vaccine, but I think it's worth noting for our listeners, there's a lot of discussion. Is, is this rushed? Is this legitimate? These, this process that we follow for vaccine development is the normal process. So that's what we've been using for the most part for all the other vaccines. It's just going a lot quicker because everybody's working on the same thing. Exactly. Uh, and, and I know in previous discussions with John Gravenstein, he is just floored by the way that science has progressed since he began with this uh, a few decades ago. Well, our medical trivia question of the day, not surprisingly, comes under the category of vaccines. Simple question. The word vaccine derives from a Latin word that has actually nothing to do with immunization or even infection. It derives from the Latin name for an animal. Which animal does it derive from and why? You'll have to stay tuned till the end of the show to find out, but we'll be back with our special guest here on Dr. Doctor after the break from the virtual studios of Redeemer Radio. We are back on Dr. Doctor with our guest today, Dr. John Grabenstein. He's a PhD pharmacist who is a global vaccinologist. Yes, I didn't make up that word. A pharmacist and a public health leader who specializes in adult vaccines, their implementation, and vaccine history. He's written more than 300 articles and 11 books. He operates today Vaccine Dynamics, a multifaceted consulting service, and he's also Associate Director for Scientific Communications with the Immunization Action Coalition. And he actually trained one of the places in the military I did. He was in the military on active duty 27 years, retiring as a colonel. We both spent time at Fitzsimmons Army Medical Center. But his pharmacy degree is from Duquesne University, home of the Tamboritsans. Yes, I'm Croatian. I know that. He has a master's (laughs) degree in education from Boston University and a doctorate in epidemiology important in any pandemic, from the University of North Carolina. He has experience in over 50 countries, has served on committees advising Health and Human Services, Department of Defense, and the Department of Commerce. He was also Global Executive Director of Medical Affairs for Merck Vaccines, and he led scientific exchange activities for a global enterprise that distributed, get this, over 180 million doses of 13 different vaccines to reduce the burden of vaccine-preventable diseases. Yes, public health doctors do the most to save lives, not just much more than what we doctors in the office do. So as a U.S. Army colonel, he directed DOD, Department of Defense, vaccination programs for 9 million troops, retirees, and family members, organized Immunization University to train clinicians across, across disciplines in health and continents. And he has a lovely wife, Laura, four wonderful children, and a rescue dog who are all fully vaccinated john is 125 years old no to have done all this my goodness and you look really good for that no john welcome to dr doctor thanks very much it's really a great pleasure to be with you so as a vaccinologist and epidemiologist you have a unique perspective on the pandemic we get a lot of people who just want to rush through it think yeah it's all over i'm going to go back to normal now but really from your perspective what's the fastest way that you believe societies around the globe can get back to normal pre-pandemic behavior? Uh, well, first of all, if you, uh, anytime you talk or sing or cough, you send out little droplets. So if you want to um, be your brother's keeper, mask, so you don't send out your droplets to others. Uh, and, then, and then there's vaccines. And um, <laughs> uh, once we... Uh, uh, between the two of them, I think we can get things uh, under control pretty well. It'll, it's going to take a little while, uh, but uh, but we'll get there. Do, do you have an idea for how masks versus distancing are important? Do they go together? Can you have one or the other? Well, the droplets fall off like a waterfall, and that's sort of where that six-foot thing comes from. Uh, but some, you know, really little micro drops, and this is some of the latest CDC stuff, can spread, and that's how you get transmission in airplanes and that kind of stuff. And John, it's, it's rare that we get to talk with a truly a vaccine expert and people who know the nitty gritty. I've had many patients always ask me, I wish we could get down to the nitty gritty. Could you briefly kind of describe the different types of vaccines that are being developed for coronavirus? Sure. Um, so um, the usual kinds of vaccines are being tested. And then there are some extra newer technology kinds of products that are also in development there for various reasons we can talk about. They're actually sort of in the lead. 
so uh, some of the companies are taking uh, purified proteins and mixing them with adjuvants and and that's a, that those are in tests. That's Novavax and Sanofi's uh, products. And you used the word adjuvant. Many people might not be aware of. Would you explain what that is? So this audience will speak a lot of Latin. So uh, <laughs> adjuvant comes from adjuvare, which means to help. And so uh, you shake vaccines oftentimes because they're a suspension and there's little aluminum hydroxide particles in there that the vaccine is suspended with. That aluminum is an adjuvant. It help, helps boost the immune response, <clears throat> the, the body notices the, the intruder, the thing that the syringe injects, and um, re you know, reacts a little more vigorously. And so the newer vaccines are just RNA particles ah. with an adjuvant, is that right? Two kinds of new things. One isn't, one isn't so new, and that's to take a virus and splice in a uh, a gene from another bug, another pathogen, another virus. And uh, so adenoviruses are being um, harnessed to produce uh, some uh, COVID uh, proteins. And so that's J&J's um, candidate and uh, Oxford University's candidate. So it's a, it's an, it's a vector uh, vaccine. And then, and then the one you just mentioned, which was uh, messenger RNA, which is sort of like a blueprint uh, to, so you, you inject the blueprint and the body makes a protein and uh, that protein is the thing that uh, the body reacts to and responds to and, um, create, and helps develop immunity, we hope. Is there an advantage to injecting the protein itself versus the RNA that codes to make the protein or vice versa? So curiously, um, going further upstream, going to the, <clears throat> the messenger RNA part, may, it, um, could, it could well be, if things succeed, will be faster, faster to get the product into clinic to test it, and also faster per, per or more uh, productive per production run. And so that is sort of why some of the mRNA uh, vaccines are sort of in the lead in the, in the um, in, in the effort. And, uh, but, you know, they have to be, it's also a new technology. It needs to be proven that it really, uh, really will work, but we'll soon know. So why would it be faster? Yeah. So the, um, basically once you get the sequence of, uh, the, the pathogen, the, the, you know, the Wuhan virus, the, um, then they could start figuring out what that meant in terms of confirmation, three-dimensional shapes. And, um, uh, that could just all be tossed around, you know, the sequences could be tossed around by internet and, uh, then, the, and then it could go into clinic fairly quickly. The okay. production run is an industrial part of the process. So after we figure out which vaccine's going to work, going to be the best, then delivering it to a, a billion people, several billion people is the next step. That's right. And, and, and the way that a lot of the acceleration is happening is a lot of this stuff that usually would be done one step after another so that um, um, the companies didn't risk losing their capital, losing their investment, is all being done pretty much simultaneously. And that's what's helping speed everything up. So the, the SARS-CoV-2 is actually an RNA virus, correct? Right. So when it makes its proteins, does it have to make the RNA turn into DNA and then turn into RNA and messenger RNA, or does the RNA go directly to messenger RNA when it gets in our cells? So I'm the epidemiologist, not the virologist, and you didn't prep me for that question. So Sorry, it's my fault. <laughs> All my fault. No, no. But, but, the, um, but you uh, happen to know the answer. Uh, anyway. So, but the, but in, but the, the DNA, so uh, what I can say is that DNA vaccines have struggled in their clinical trials and in, in general. Uh, with other with multiple pathogens, the the mRNA is showing considerable promise, and uh, so we'll see. Interesting, because in our cells, our own DNA is transcribed into um, RNA before a protein is made. So it's like the virus is one step closer to making that protein, and the protein is actually the thing that stimulates the immune response. Is that right? That's right. It, it looks like it's a piece of the bug, or it, you know, I mean, it's built to look like the piece of the bug. The body says, "Aha, intruder." Uh, I'm going to defend myself. I'm going to make antibodies. And then it makes the antibodies that, that neutralize, that bind, that uh, um, neutralize the, the, uh, the pathogen. And so you, vaccines have been, uh, an analogy is shadow boxing, 
you train somebody <laughs> with uh, with that little piece of the of the pathogen, and then when if the if if the real thing, the whole thing shows up, the body's trained and ready and can respond real quick. Now that that mRNA vaccine. Uh, technology. We don't have any vaccines like that right now, right? No, this is this would be the first. And I mean, there have been a variety of products that have been coming along. Uh, respiratory syncytial virus, even varicella, a whole, whole variety of things have been proposed and are, have been in preclinical studies, been in phase ones. Uh, but this would be, you know, it, it, the obviously the impetus, the, the motivation to get a, a product all the way uh, across the finish line uh, is what's moving things along. Um, um, as, as a vaccine guy, you've got to be really excited to see this in action, right? <laughs> um, I, I could use a little more sleep, but uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, you had mentioned why it is kind of a leading candidate because it's going to be quicker to distribute. Um, the fact that it's new, I think, has scared a lot of people. Uh, the idea of anything new is can be yeah. scary, you know. Um, what what should we find reassuring? I mean, there's there's things being talked about. This is altering our genome, um, you know, and, and there's things like that that are fearful to people. Is that an accurate way to describe what's going on? Uh, nobody's genome is going to be altered. We'll start there. So so I, I, I tell people that what I do is 10% immunology and 90% sociology. Or <laughs> it's about Sounds like a radio show. <laughs> well, you know, I mean... It, the ketchup manufacturer warns you, it's the same great taste. We changed the shape of the bottle. <laughs> right? yeah. Humans, <laughs> humans uh, don't react to new <laughs> well sometimes, right? Yeah, that's no, true. So, so all, all kidding aside, um, so it's a new technology, and, and that means uh, you know, uh, caution is appropriate, but it could also be a breakthrough, right? And so... You know, we, we never had a polio vaccine until we had a polio vaccine and, and that sort of thing. So the mRNA, oh, ooh, you're, you're tinkering with the genome. Um, so I use the analogy of it's a blueprint, right? And people will say, oh, well, it's going to change me forever. No, it's actually a blueprint on rice paper. And it sort of, it, it expresses that protein once and then it falls apart and dissolves and goes away. And, the, and, and that's the analogy. The, the real biology of it is that that mRNA never gets into the cell nucleus, which is where, you know, that's the vault where you're, you know, where you lock up your DNA. And so there's no changing of that DNA because it never gets anywhere. So the codes, it works in the cytoplasm of the cell, correct? Right. So, and for listeners, all cells have a nucleus with the, the DNA. And then the cytoplasm, which is where there are a lot of different things called organelles that are little factories, in there. And just like in our own cells, when we're making proteins, we use mRNA. And like John said, they disappear and they have to be remade for new proteins. Is that accurate, John? Exactly right. Yep. So that's a, a, the old computer people read one, you know, it's a, it's a write once kind of thing. And I w I'm thinking of a vaccine that I actually received right before the lockdown and right after. And that was the latest um, shingles vaccine, Shingrix, with, which is a recombinant DNA, right? So what what's similarities, if any, between receiving a DNA vaccine like that one, which has a really strong reaction, and these mRNA ones? And I think that's because of the adjuvant. So, so Shingrix it consists of a recombinant protein, but that protein is isolated. It, it, it's not a DNA vaccine. Ah, very good. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a protein vaccine. So, so um, Zostavax, the, the original Zoster vaccine, was a live virus, a live right. virus. So Shingrix comes on, it's a new technology. It, it's a different technology. It's a, it's a well-established technology, but it's, it's an isolated protein and, and mixed with an adjuvant, and it, you know, it hurts. Uh, but, you know, Are there some it, it COVID works. vaccines being made with protein the same way that Shingrix is made? Fundamentally the same. Yes. Uh, and that's Novavax and, and Sanofi's uh, approaches. They're a little further behind, but, uh, and, uh, well, they'll probably be two-dose products. Um, but yes, the, 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 it, it, they are quite analogous, and they'll have adjuvants, and they're uh, quite analogous to, uh, to Shingrix. Okay. I read a, a startling article a while ago, and by your response to this, you thought it was kind of odd, but this scientist was saying that 
our, our vaccine efforts are short-sighted. And I think you told me there's 250 to 300 different vaccine candidates. But he said they're short-sighted because the producers are all doing the same thing, which doesn't sound like it. But he said that the vaccines might only protect the individuals who receive them, but not protect other people. They say vaccines should protect both the individual and their neighbor. This was a whole new concept to me. What is right and what is not right with that statement? Yeah. So a useful vaccine, a protective vaccine, would protect the recipient, protect me, Mm -hmm. right? So if it protects me from infection, great. If it lets me get, if if the bug gets inside, I get infected, but I don't get disease, that's still fine. Because yes. I've avoided the, you know, I'm differentiating infection right. from disease. Correct. You know, bad symptoms, basically. Um, and then there's a third thing, and that's transmission. If, if I take the vaccine, am I somehow less able to transmit the bug to somebody else, to my neighbor? And, it, and that might be, did it clear the virus from my respiratory tract? Right. And so if I cough, sing, speak, sneeze, am I, you know, I'm going to send out droplets, but is virus going to go out with those droplets? And that's, that, you know, saying, saying, full vaccine, unless you can do all three, I would say, I'd love to have all three, but I'll settle for two. I'll settle for preventing infection, preventing disease, and then, um, um, you know, transmission is a third thing. Now, when you're designing a vaccine, do you have any idea if it's going to do all those things? Or don't you know until you the trials? Well, you, you start with animals and you see if, you know, you. so what's been done with the COVID vaccines is uh, they've infected macaques, monkeys, yes. non-human primates, and then intentionally challenged them with the virus. And A, the monkeys don't get sick. Um, B, in, in several of the studies, the monkeys don't, they, they can't retrieve live virus from their lungs, which is which would get to that transmission question yes. we just talked about, right? Um, and so monkeys are monkeys. Now we need to look <laughs> at humans. And um, so, and so the, um, what, uh, it's all, so, so the clinical trials, the phase three um, pivotal trials, We'll look at whether the people get infected, whether the people get disease, the first two things I talked about. It's really hard to measure transmission because you gotta, I mean, you can do it with measles and chickenpox in households and one kid gets infected and do the other kids get infected. It's easier to do with with kids in households with childhood diseases. It'll be hard to know that at first um, with COVID vaccines, that would be an analysis, a secondary analysis. Okay, so it sounds like this article I read, they were just trying to, stir up, I don't know, controversy or concern where maybe it shouldn't have been. Yeah. The problem with the 24-hour news cycle is there's a lot of air to fill. Yeah, that's, that doesn't sound like something that people would want to do, right, Tom? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. So, spike protein, it's everywhere in the news. Is the spike protein the one that helps attach into the target cell for the virus? Correct. And so this is the only, the main, the primary target for vaccines? Um, what was uh, figured out fairly early with animal studies was that if you could block the spike protein, you could protect the animal. And so with that um, model, then um, people invested effort into uh, getting those vaccines into humans and see if they would respond similarly. And so. Um, so it's like, it's essentially an Achilles heel to the virus. It has to have that spike. If you can neutralize the spike, you defang. I'm mixing metaphors. But you know. <laughs> Please do. We love it. De-spike. You, you defang the um, virus and um, you, you hopefully can prevent disease. So before COVID-19, what was the normal timeline for developing a vaccine? Oh, Ten years, it would be a would be an average, and there were some uh, even longer ones. And we still don't have an HIV vaccine, and you know that sort of. And there's no good malaria vaccine. So fortunate, we're lucky in the sense that it seems like COVID nineteen is an easy virus. 
um, far, it seems, as far as we can tell right now, uh, a simpler target than trying to solve malaria. And, and is it, does it mutate as much as influenza virus, which we know we have to get a new shot every year? Right. That, that influenza mutation is the reason you get shots every year. Um, no, it does not mutate as much. And people are watching that. And you'll every now and again, some reporter will pick up the mutation story and make a bold headline. But it, at the moment, it doesn't seem like that's much of a... Um, much of a thing, and if it does, then you, as long, you know, you know, maybe uh, I, I tell people I want ten years worth of immunity. The bug's going to be around for a while. Now, whether that's one dose that protects me for ten years, or if I need ten different doses, okay. But I, I'm expecting vaccine technologies, one way or another, to give immunity. And we won't know that answer until the period of time goes along, whether or not it's going to be long-term protection or annual protection. Uh, it'll be it'll be a few years. Uh, I was remembering the other day that um, it, it was actually army scientists who developed flu vaccines in the 40s, and they didn't realize that there was all this mutation oh. until the 50s. Oh no! Wow. It, they, the vaccine stopped working. Why was that? Well, then the virology people said the, the bug changed, and uh, so. So we're going to take a break right now. Lots of good stuff here. There'll be a lot after the break here on Dr. Doctor from the virtual studios of Redeemer Radio. And we're back with Dr. Doctor talking today with Dr. John Gravenstein about coronavirus vaccines and vaccines in general. You know, John, one of the things that we've heard a lot about is this idea of herd immunity and trying to get people vaccinated. With vaccines, I know depending on the vaccine, a different number of people have to be vaccinated to achieve that. And if it falls below, like with the measles, we see little outbreaks. Do we know what that number is for coronavirus? We've heard maybe 60, 70%. Is that just a guess? It's a guess. Uh, and herd immunity comes from the world of veterinarians. And I am reminded from time to time that um, I'm not a, uh, that, that, that other person's not a cow or a sheep. Or something like that. <laughs> th there are other terms that are more polite, uh, community immunity or uh, in indirect protection. But it's um, when, you, when you have enough people who are immune, the, the spread, the transfer, the transmission becomes less and less efficient. You're more, when you cough or sing or, or speak, those droplets are more likely to find an immune person and stop than a susceptible person and infect. And with measles, for example, um, that number has to be like 95% of people immune. Um, we, we just don't know with, uh, with COVID and, and we won't, you know, in a few years we will, but it's a little too soon to tell. You know, recently I came across a number that in mid-September, I think the, the survey was done that said only about 51% of Americans said they would definitely or probably take the COVID-19 vaccine. Um, what, how do you make, make heads or tails of this? In, in May, it was 72%. Does it surprise you as it's getting closer, less people are interested? Doesn't surprise me a bit. Um, because what kind of vaccine do you, are you offering me? Well, you don't know, you survey person, you. Um, yeah. <laughs> so people couldn't, do you want it? What is it? I don't know. I can't describe it to you. Well, I, don't, I probably don't want it then. Yeah. And once we're in a place where we can say, this is what it is, this is how many doses it is, that you can, uh, uh, this is the level of protection you can expect. It's already been in 30,000 people okay, fine, that's not 100,000 people, it's not a million people, it's 30,000. It, when you can start answering their questions, they're probably going to be more willing. And we got the whole election thing and all that crazy nonsense. Um, so, you know, when we can get more specific, uh, then, it, it, then it can, um, then I think uptake will, will be pretty reasonable. And the other thing that is, and this is, I remember I talked about sociology and anthropology. Yes. Uh, the, the, the way that the most likely, the greatest likelihood that you will accept a vaccine is if somebody you trust offers it to you. So your doctor <laughs> offering it to you uh, with confidence, with, uh, you know, with, with explanation, being able to answer your questions, you're more likely to take it. It seems that the older I've gotten, maybe the more states I've lived in, I find more and more people 
who are skeptical, suspicious of vaccines. They've been called anti-vaxxers. And what do you think is responsible for this growing number of people who are suspicious or scared of vaccines, John? Um, the folks who are hesitant are usually just scared or confused or can't, fi- can't figure out what the story is. And so they're, they're interested in information and happy to, to hear from a trusted person about why the vaccine is useful is valuable, is worth taking, has been tested, is well understood. Uh, pe- uh, people in the vaccine world say we're, the vaccines are victims of their own success. There's, yes. you know, when we, you haven't seen a case of smallpox, probably, uh, certainly not lately. And, you know, when was the last time, I mean, we're, a few people have seen measles, but only because of some resurgences. The gene, the, the genie's in the bottle and the vaccine keeps the genie in the bottle Unless, it, unless they're not vaccinated and then the genie comes out. And, and so people don't know, what, you know, haven't, don't, aren't afraid of polio and all those other things, right. other diseases like they used to be, like our parents were. Now, you know, I, I think a lot of this sentiment against vaccines started with the whole Andrew Wakefield thing and the article that was retracted for lots of reasons. Do you, do you think coronavirus might be the opportunity for the world of vaccines to, to prove its worth to everybody who's never seen smallpox? I think it's a good, I think there's a good chance of that. And, and um, you know, the, the, uh, it's going to be really important that the um, uh, licensing process for, for these vaccines be fully scientifically based, no politics, just let's, let's do it the usual way. Let's get all, let's get all the evidence. Here's, let's show people the evidence, um, the, 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 the protocols that are, that are, uh, collecting, you know, the, by which the companies are collecting the data have been posted for the first time ever to try to be transparent and earn the public trust. Um, so Normally think, those are like you know, trade secrets, like, right? I'm sorry? Normally those are like trade secrets. So yeah, they're are... trade secrets. It's not, you know, I mean, it's, uh, it, the companies do the studies pretty much the same way. So it's, it's hardly even a trade, trade secret. It's more of a tradition. But um I, you know, I think you're going to see people who, they're, they're going to be skeptics. You're going to say, no, no, you go first. I'll, I'll, I'll watch what happens. And that's okay. That's the human nature part of it. Um, but eventually, I think, you know, I, 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 I don't fear vaccines because I think I've told you this before, the vaccines are just an intentional stimulus of your immune system. We write them down in books and we, we remember the dates of these, you know, this one or that one. But your, your food isn't sterile. The air isn't sterile. The, the, my desk certainly isn't sterile. <laughs> and um, we, are, we are encountering bacteria and viruses every day. And your immune system is responding to them every day. And we don't write those down because they're, you know, they're not intentional. But a vaccination is intentional. But the body is just built to handle it. I love that perspective. Uh, that you just gave there. That's very useful. I know that in many of the studies, I think the FDA set the efficacy threshold for approval at, what, 50%? That's right. What, what does that mean? What 50% of what, John? Yeah, so it, it's a reduction in risk. So let's say um, you have a population of whatever size and 100 people, um, and they're unvaccinated, and a hundred of them contracted coronavirus. Um, but you take another population, same size, and you vaccinate them, and you wait the right amount of time, and then you know life happens, and fifty of them get the disease. A hundred versus fifty is a is a reduction in half. It's fifty percent effective. It reduced your risk by half. Uh, now it would be nice if it was more than that. It would be nice if it was ninety percent. Uh, but, you know, the, at the moment we have zero percent protection. There is no vaccine. So the FDA says your minimum bar is 50, 50%. And, and how, how effective would that 50% compare to a lot of the vaccines that people are familiar with, whether it be the MMR, chickenpox, pneumonia, yeah, stuff uh, like that? MMR, hepe, um, well, so let's break that apart. Measles is like 98% effective, really good. 
Rubella is 95 plus percent effective. Mumps is 90, you know, not quite as good, but um, a measurable difference. Um, and and um, pertussis is uh, in the 70% range. Flu, it depends on the year. Influenza, it depends on the year. It can be, you know, 50% some years, um, but still better than not being vaccinated. So, John, in these studies right now, and I know that some of these phase three studies have 30 to 60,000 people in them, are half of them receiving a placebo? Yes. Um, in most of the studies, it's, uh, it's salt water, it's saline. Um, in um, one of the British studies, it's a meningococcal vaccine uh, as the comparison group. Interesting. I'm curious, have you signed up as a study participant? I, I have some friends over at the University of Maryland and I uh, emailed them saying, would you put a study site over here where I live so I can participate? It, it's, a, it's a two hour drive to Baltimore from where I live. I, uh, I signed up and it'd be three hours for me. I thought Fort Wayne would be big enough, but no. <laughs> yeah, so I, I wouldn't mind. I would be willing, but just the, the logistics was, was more than I was willing to put up with. Okay, the, the thing that so many people bring up and we've touched on it a little bit, but what is being done to make sure that in this speedy vaccine process, it is going to be done safely, that we will know if it's safe or not. Right. Uh, if I had my PowerPoint projector, I would show you a picture <laughs> of a graphic that I clipped out of the New York Times. And it showed, it was back in April, and they had um, you know, a, a set of bars uh, over time showing how, you know, why it takes 10 years for a vaccine to come around. And then they showed what's being done now, and it was the same number of bars. It was just that they were stacked almost simultaneously. Yes. And, and effectively, that's the compression. And, and the phrase that people in industry use is, we're doing it at risk. Ooh, that sounds scary, doesn't it? But the risk, they mean, is the risk of losing money, uh, where time and money are a trade-off, not the risk to the volunteers. <laughs> So, so, you know, a, a company like Merck or Pfizer or any of them would um, do a phase one study, see if it worked. If it uh, works, then they proceed to phase two. If, they, right. if it doesn't work, they stop right. or they rejigger the formula or whatever and, and try again. But now they're all being lined up so that if something stumbles, um, you know, it, all that money that's being spent all at once might get wasted. Um, fortunately, most everything that is being tried, all those, te- uh, curiously, all those different technologies we talked about are all succeeding. That's why wow. we call it an easy virus. Yes. Um, and uh, that's good. That's really good news. So what are the safety hoops that something has to pass through so that you could say to any citizen, you know, the right things have been done. I'm willing to receive this vaccine. So uh, you start with animals and you start with mice and you work your way up to non-human primates, monkeys, uh, and, and look for safety in, in them. They don't fill out surveys very well, so you eventually have to get into humans. <laughs> um, and, and so phase one studies are a few dozen or a dozen people. Um, and then phase two is a few hundred. Phase three is in, into thousands. And, um, and, and the safety monitoring never stops. That, that's, 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 I mean, it's true for drugs too, but it's yes. really true for vaccines where you're giving something to healthy people to keep them healthy. So your standards for mm-hmm. safety are the highest of any medication. So higher than a drug. Far, far higher. I mean, um, in FDA parlance, things have to be safe and effective. Well, cancer chemotherapies are technically <laughs> safe in that definition. It's all about it's, your reference point. Right? What are you, what are you, what's the disease you're trying to treat, right? And yeah. you know, how bad's the disease? But with vaccines, you've got to be squeaky clean. And, um, you know, every fever is, is sweated, so to speak. Um, <laughs> and, um, and so that, that surveillance will go on forever. I, can I tell, I'm going to tell two stories. Please this do. The swine flu vaccine of 1976. Oh, yeah. I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was in Pittsburgh at the time. I didn't realize I would be using this, this uh, story later. There were three heart attack deaths in flu vaccine recipients on the same day in Pittsburgh. Oh, my God. 
you know, newspaper headlines. Uh, and, and it was nobody had it, but nobody had ever bothered to figure out how many heart attack deaths are there in Pittsburgh on any one day. And it was way more than three. Yes. And so this is not a cause and effect relationship. It's a no. red herring. It's a coincidence. On the other hand, the ongoing monitoring found that there was a slightly elevated risk of a neurologic condition called Guillain-Barre syndrome. And that, you know, it was one case per 100,000 vaccine recipients. You know, that's a pretty small amount, but Guillain-Barre is a pretty nasty disease. And so, and, and it was a true cause and effect relationship. The vaccine did it rarely. Um, now, you, so you, you know, on one side of the scale, you put the vaccines to blame, and what's the vaccine's value? There was no, there was no influenza in 76, as it turned out. And so it was not worth absorbing the cost, paying the price for the Guillain-Barre syndrome because there was no value to the vaccination program. And so two, the heart attacks, not cause and effect, the Guillain-Barre cause and effect. Wow, that's amazing. And so we're, we're here, early October 2020. What kind of data do we have regarding these various trials? Right. So uh, I'm trying to, roughly 10, uh, well, so there's probably about 10 non-human primate studies. So we have the, how, the, how the monkeys did. We have, there's probably about 10, maybe 12 published uh, reports from the phase one, phase two trials so far. Um, the, the, the vaccine, are we on safety now? The vaccines are causing, shots hurt. So, you know, so the vaccines are causing sore arms. They're causing swelling at the, you know, at the injection site, redness at the injection site, a little fever, a little malaise, a uh, little lethargy, um, headache, that kind of thing. One, a couple of the trials have had a few 102 degree fevers, that sort of thing. Um, but so, you know, but relative to, you know, 200,000 deaths from coronavirus, you know, um, the, the balance is looking, so far, the balance is looking pretty good. Now we need the bigger studies and, and we need the ongoing surveillance. So what about this case uh, from a few weeks ago? Was it the Oxford vaccine with the patient with transverse myelitis? What's the importance of that event? Well, so... Um, uh, First of all, the, the good, so the, uh, the, the, the trial was underway. Uh, I'm, I'm going to speculate about what happened. The, okay. Because I don't really, I don't know. I fundamentally don't know, but I can imagine what would happen in the clinic and whether it's this case or any uh, reaction. But okay, so the, 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 the patient gets the, gets the dose of the vaccine. They fill out some survey forms. They're maybe called every week or something like that. And so suddenly the, the patient says, hey, my, I can't lift my arms or whatever the, whatever the, I'm speculating again, whatever the condition was. And the, and the doc in charge of the trial says, let's get you to see a neurologist. So they stop the trial. Well, they stop enrollment. They stop dosing. Yes. All the surveillance, all the safety monitoring continues. So we can't really say they stopped the trial. They stopped enrollment or they stopped dosing. They, they, and, and then they send the guy to the person to a neurologist, neurologist, like all neuro good neurologists would order tests, right? And uh, who knows, electro something or other tests. And, um, you know, and I, I don't need to, I'm sure the patient was stressed and, and probably you know, hurting. So I forgive me for that. But um, so, but the, it takes a while to get the test results. The test results have to get sent back to the doc in charge of the, in charge of the trial. Uh, it has to go to a, a, a uh, an adjudicating committee called the Data Safety and Monitoring Board, DSMB, which is uh, wise men and women who are sitting back looking at all these report, any, any serious report that comes in saying, uh, is it or is it not okay to resume? Um, and uh, in the UK, that trial has resumed. The, U the US FDA has asked for more, as I understand it, more patient records or something or other, and has not yet resumed that particular study in the U.S. So, so and this board is not directly beholden to the company making the vaccine. Is that correct? Right. They are independent. They're usually university professor types uh, or, you know, long experienced clinicians who, um, who 
you know, have, have a good understanding of, uh, of clinical medicine, have a good understanding of epidemiology. Um, you know, one of the things you look for is, okay, any one thing can be a coincidence, but is there a second one? Is there a third yes. one? And looking for patterns oftentimes is part of it. John, we're going to have to do something we've never done with Dr. Doctor, but we've prepped you for it. We have so much information that we can't fit it into our 52-minute show. So we're going to break from interviewing John now for the radio show, but we're going to continue interviewing him and put the extra material. It's like extra time in a soccer match or overtime in football. We're going to put it on our podcast so you can get the benefit as soon as possible of John's wisdom. John Gravenstein, thanks for being on this part of Dr. Doctor. We're going to move over to the podcast here in just a moment. Thanks. And we're back with Dr. Doctor from the virtual studios of Redeemer Radio and the answer to the medical trivia question. Yes, the word vaccine derives from a Latin word that comes from an animal. Which animal is it and why? Had, had you heard this before, Andrew? You know, I, I had, I'm a proud homeschooling dad, so I'm hoping the, the little Malali kids will get this one. Uh, and to, to all my homeschooling and Latin studying friends, I think they'll recognize vaca. Vaca, meaning? The cow. Ah, sheep? No, not a sheep. It's uh, <laughs> I was the cow's move. I hope we learned the same Latin time. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's the cow. It's the cow. We're just being dorky dads, or at least and one of us is. There's a story there, right? How it, how it came up with that name. Well, it's fascinating. In uh, 1796, there was an English physician named Edward Jenner, and he purposely infected a young boy with cowpox because he'd noticed that milkmaids had outstanding complexions. They'd never had smallpox or the scars. So he thought, hmm, somehow he made the connection that they had gotten cowpox from cows and the cowpox uh he thought well maybe it prevented them from getting it so he purposely gave cowpox to a boy but then what, i don't what know did, what uh, the boy do to deserve that tom i don't know do you know i don't know <laughs> what, what i don't know is what institutional review board allowed him to then we're not in kansas anymore are we instill smallpox to see if he got smallpox I mean, that sounds pretty unethical to me. Thanks be to God, the little boy didn't. But it was evidence that giving somebody a milder disease with a similar virus protected against the worst virus. Now, something that's uh, an interesting addendum is the oldest extant sample of smallpox vaccine is actually from 1902 in Philadelphia, and they sequenced it. And it was supposedly cowpox, but it wasn't cowpox. It was actually horsepox. And Edward Jenner says that he actually experimented both with cowpox and horsepox. So really, instead of being a vaccine, maybe it should have the Latin prefix for horse and be equicine. But I'm not no. promoting that movement. <laughs> yeah, you'd have to start some kind of a, uh, some movement for sure to change that. But so, so so vaccination actually, uh, strictly speaking, referred to providing immunity against smallpox, whereas immunization would be the broader term. But now it's become kind of corrupted and broadened in meeting uh, the word vaccination. Uh, there's something we want to let you know is we went on an additional 45 minutes after that interview with John, and you can hear the rest of it on the podcast, and you're going to hear things you didn't hear in this radio interview. You're going to hear about what are the ethical principles that are being used to distribute the vaccine once it's available, and when does he think it'll become available, and how much longer does he think we need to wear masks? <laughs> We're not going to tell you now. Uh-uh. We're going to talk about what are his biggest concerns with the safety of a potential vaccine. And finally, what are the ethics of producing vaccines? Yes, there's even more of that in this podcast-only episode. Just Google doctor, doctor. It's on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. We also are linking on the episode two panels that I got to chair at the Catholic Medical Association with 
Dr. Paul Sieslak and Dr. Paul Carson, who are both infectious disease and state public health officers, as well as philosopher Tony Flood. I think you will really enjoy these. I think most lay people could understand the vast majority of what we talk about. And finally, I wanted to make sure that you were aware that we did a poll with Catholic Medical Association members regarding how well the measures being taken to prevent the spread of coronavirus is working in our churches. We got respondents from 42 states and over 140 different dioceses, where 95% of them said six-foot distancing was required. 88% said that masks were required for attendees. And what we learned was, even though 5% of people said they were aware of a COVID transmission in the churches, when we drilled down and asked more information, none of them happened at regular Sunday or daily masses. They all happened at special events like weddings or funerals or parish council meetings where the same distancing and masks were not being practiced. So in other words, we have even more evidence that the measures we are taking are working. And this is very good news for everybody who is happy to be able to go back to church and hopefully will allow us to to continue working back towards normal. Amen. Thank you all for listening with us to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association brought to you from Redeemer Radio on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend, especially if they're interested in coronavirus or vaccines and invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app or at RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And then this is Dr. Andrew (laughs) Mullally signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word DOCTOR to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit RedeemerRadio.com doctor. Abortion. Pornography. Embryonic stem cell research. Corporate contributions to Planned Parenthood. Do you invest in companies that are engaged in these practices? The Ave Maria Mutual Funds do not, and their investment portfolios reflect that. Ave Maria Mutual Funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors can invest in the no-load Ave Maria Mutual Funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria Mutual Funds today at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com.